millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Ancient Office Hours. I'm super excited about this week's episode because I got to chat with Nicholas Colm, a lead world designer at Cloud Chamber Games. I want to give a quick shout out to Mel McCubrey, who suggested I speak with him. He's worked on a couple notable projects, including The Witcher 3 and Assassin's Creed Odyssey. One of the many reasons I was very excited to speak with him was because of his work developing the choice consequence systems in both games. We chatted a little about his path from Germany into gaming, how he approached crafting the choice consequence systems for Odyssey and Witcher, and how to tackle representation issues in gaming and not being able to please everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! It's great to have you on. I was really, really looking forward to this conversation because I want to dig right into a little bit about you and your background, just so we can kind of set the stage. When you were a little kid, were you always really big into history and mythology or did you approach it from like just you like narratives? I was always a nerd, straightforward. And it was more so the love of telling stories and reading stories first, obviously, and immersing myself in various fictional worlds and mythological worlds. As a young kid, I would read all the fairy tales. Like I'm from Germany originally. We obviously have a very, very rich uh, fairy tale culture back there. And then growing up further, I went through my goth phase. So I went into vampires and werewolves and do all that sort of stuff. But like through it all it was mainly my an interest in overall mythology uh, where do these stories come from and why how does it make people feel when you tell those stories basically when I decided at some point that I'm going to be a video game designer one of the main reasons that I did decide to do that was a shift in storytelling in video games personally I attribute it to Mass Effect because that was sort of the game that made me really feel like oh hey storytelling in games is like such a thing now there were other games obviously before them that did it really well and, and I loved but that was sort of a 
an eye-opening moment for me. And I was like, okay, well, we can tell all these stories with these tools now. So when I went into making games, that was sort of a driving factor, telling stories. And arguably, what is mythology is not a lot of interesting stories that have been told over the age. <laughs> Definitely true. And did you always want to go into the gaming industry specifically? Or did you entertain dreams, thoughts, ideas about, oh, maybe Hollywood or maybe TV? I have a pretty weird history. <laughs> I always liked games, but I never really considered them as a career option until I was around 29, actually. I was, oh, I, I went to high school and then out of high school, I went to the military uh, back then in Germany. Uh, it was still a conscription service. So like you had to do either military or social service a year after high school. So I did that, stayed for three years. And then after that, I started studies in uh, Asian sciences, actually. Um, because I, um, when I was a kid, I lived in Japan for six years. So I was kind of like, hey, I don't really know what to do with my life. So how about I study something that I really enjoyed living in? And <laughs> I did that. But it turns out that that was not a good enough of a reason to find a job that I actually wanted to do for the rest of my life. Throughout the studies, eventually I figured, hey, I could actually make a career out of out of making video games, sort of like did some research and whatnot. Of course, my parents were absolutely against it. Like, you just want to play video games all day. And I had a lot of work to convince them. And yeah, eventually then as I started college studies for game design when I was 29 in Vancouver, first job in the industry I only got when I was 31. So I arguably came late and the idea of like Hollywood or, or writing or anything like that didn't really occur to me. I did a lot of writing in my free time. Like I've written a lot of stories myself together with other people in online chat rooms and big tabletop role-playing fans so you know arguably a lot of storytelling there but yeah I don't know it never really occurred to me to go in that direction and maybe that was because my main outlet for the, the hobby that just stuck with me throughout that time was gaming and just a natural fit in that way. Yeah and was there a connection between your favorite kind of mythology growing up? Well, I'll start with, did you have a favorite certain cultural mythology growing up? Was it German? Was it Greek, Egyptian? Sometimes it's those sort of Celtic and Norse. Mm. Did you have a favorite? I don't think I actually had a favorite, to be honest. A lot of what I did was sort of an amalgamation of various mythologies. So a lot, a lot of my like th where I did the most storytelling in my younger years is like in, in role playing games and whatnot was in in universe that had a lot of influence from various cultural backgrounds. And World of Darkness back then as a universe had influences from yeah from Egyptian mythology, from Greek mythology, from ancient Christian beliefs, and all of you know Celtic mythology. Everything was basically thrown in because they took everything they could possibly get and tried to. <laughs> and then that sort of influenced me in that like I I loved reading up on those stories and where they came from and then you know seeing how they interpreted it into the game and how they used it to tell stories in a modern way and that was all I probably didn't really think about it like that back then because I was a child it it already fascinated me in that way now looking back it's like oh yeah yeah that, that's what I do for a living now <laughs> that's awesome though and so since you didn't have a favorite one were you that kind of kid who you just liked what kind of games you liked and that was kind of it? Or did you notice that you kind of trended toward a certain type of video game growing up? Or I could pretty much just say, like, what were your favorite games growing up or that you felt were influential to you? 
yeah, it was always role-playing games. I mean, I did have some other favorites. I played X-Wing like nobody's business, and that was mostly because it was a Star Wars game, and I enjoyed like the fighter pilot stereotype as a young boy, so hey. Most of my favorites, and I'd argue the games that influenced me the most, are role-playing games that have that are story-driven, narratively-driven games that start with things like the old Baldur's Gate series or uh, Ultima back in the day as well, and then moving on to like, more modern versions such as Mass Effect games, Witcher, which I also and worked on on the third one. <laughs> yeah, that would be my the genre that influenced me the most. That's really cool. I did not know that you worked on Witcher until very shortly <laughs> before we spoke, but that's awesome. And I definitely want to cover some of that but, um, <laughs> we, we can go there a bit later but once you decided and you were like yes i'm going to go into video games this is what i want to do you mentioned that your parents were probably not very thrilled a lot of people's parents if, if you think about it would probably not be thrilled by their child ostensibly coming to them and saying i want to go into video games and then you know have the horrified reaction of <laughs> no I think that is, uh, it has changed. When I did that, it was 2009, 2008. Video games were still not, I'm not going to stay in their infancy. Obviously, there was a lot going on in video games already, but they were not as mainstream as they are today. Today, you say, oh, I want to work in video games. And pretty much everybody has an idea of how broad of a field that actually is, how huge the industry is. Back then, it was still more of a, well, it's games. Like, what, what can there be to it? Um, even though it was already huge, it wasn't as public as it is today. You know, there were no game like, there was no game like Fortnite or, or you know, game, games that have captured billions of people across the world by now. So that's, I think, the main reason why it was hard, because what actually convinced my parents in the end to to be okay with it was like my I think my dad did some research on his own and asked a couple of friends and they were like, it's a huge industry. Like, let, 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 the, let the guy go. It's, it's huge. It's the future. And I think nowadays people understand that a little better or, or it's more in the, in the public conscience, I would say. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think the common sort of idea of if you're going to go into the entertainment industry is that you're going to try to be an actor or do something in Hollywood or just these roles that we think of when you think of entertainment are very much on the public facing side and not on the largely development side. And so I think people aren't as acutely aware of how easy or hard it is to get into where you are, I suppose. Mm, So (laughs) when you were trying to now, you know, knock on the door of all these different places that, you know, control the, the, the keys to the kingdom, really. You know, how hard was that for you to sort of try to build up a portfolio of work and say, hey, please take a chance on me. I'm not just mm. Joe Schmo who thinks I can write. <laughs> yeah, again, I think it has changed drastically over the years. When I did it, basically what happened to me was uh, while I was studying Asian sciences, um, I was like, I'm done with this. I wasn't really into it anymore. So I, on like a random off chance, applied to Blizzard in in, uh, France uh, back then. They had like a position for a translator open from English to German. And I was like, hey, I speak both those languages. Why not? Uh, I actually got an interview and everything. And I got, not for that job, but for another job, I got an offer even for a job. So it was like, hey, I, I could have joined there. That being said, when I told my parents about this, they're like, no, you need to have finished studies. Uh, you need to have a degree. Otherwise, it's all irrelevant. And I'm like, well, okay. So I eventually, I had to turn down that offer because I couldn't make it work on my own. And instead, I went and uh, studied 
uh, game art and design, got a, got a diploma and uh, got my job. What I will say is that the diploma didn't have anything to do with me getting a job. <laughs> it's sort of a... It's sort of the thing, the gaming industry is is weird in the way that it is getting more formalized these days because it is a bigger industry now. There's like thousands and thousands of people working in it and, you know, billions of money, uh, of dollars to be made. So therefore, there are certain things that are being put in place in terms of hiring practices and whatnot. And then also because you have to, like oftentimes you want to travel between countries and then you have to deal with visa issues, which obviously, again, like if you have a degree, it's a lot easier to get a visa in a, in a country and whatnot. But that being said, when I applied for my first job, I had to do it in Germany because I was a German citizen. I didn't have a work visa in Canada, just a study visa, and I couldn't transfer that over. I applied to 30 positions in Germany, various studios, various sizes. And at the end of the day, I, you know, included the work that I did in college and like projects that we did because that that was one thing that was good about the colleges they encouraged us to do a lot of like small game projects and whatnot and they looked at those projects and they're like yep that that was interesting and then i had an interview and then that was it that was the that was the job the entry-level job and that is to this day honestly still true i'm now in a position where i hire new people and I'm actually right now looking for, for some people, uh, associate, so junior level positions. And I never look at the academic, academic backgrounds, like not even a glance. Like I look at, do they have experience in anything industry related? So have they worked on small studios or uh, indie devs or whatnot? Or do they have a portfolio of projects they actually made themselves in one of the dozens of engines that are freely available because you can download everything these days. You can download Unreal, you can download Unity. They're very accessible and you can do a lot by yourself. And that just speaks, it's just easier to gauge the talent and, and the skill level of an applicant that way, as opposed to just trusting an arbitrary diploma from some university nothing against academic you know education and whatnot it's just that and this might change also in the future because but like for me the gaming programs that we have in in universities were you developed skills sure but the main important point to demonstrate in in any interview is that you can apply those skills so project finished projects are what really count yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. So you can look if you are in academia, it can only really help you, I suppose, whether it's applying to these jobs or other jobs. You know, I don't really know how the industry works because I'm on the outside. But for companies like Ubisoft that hire historians to guide historical games, I'm sure mm -hmm. that you might want that at least peripheral history degree or experience. So yeah. there are positions like that, I'm Absolutely. I'm assuming at, at other places. But I think it's it's really encouraging for people who may not have the most fancy academic creds. You don't <laughs> you don't yeah. need it. I mean, I think it, it hits kind of the nail on the head with the applicable side of okay, well, you can get degrees, but in terms of applying it to getting a project done, you know, that's that's its own kind of thing that's completely separate, which is awesome. Yes. And that's something that I'm yeah. always stressing for the more academic brained people, which is it's great <laughs> that you can get out of school if you have a PhD or something that's awesome, but you need to know how to apply yeah. whatever it is you learned. Because at the end of the day, the piece of paper that says you're really smart in this one area is not going <laughs> to open all these not doors. That was the big lie. I think I had a good friend who um, he's he's almost done with his PhD and he was like everyone every advisor every schooling anything has lied to you and I was like mm. what do you mean and he was just like they told me getting his PhD would 
instantly make like 20 job offers up here because I'm qualified. He was like, no, they're selling you a bag of goods. Yeah, that is not how it works. So exactly. I think it's really important for people to hear that, you know, it's it's not all about the academic degree. Absolutely not. And 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 this is, again, not to diminish the value of academic education, obviously, because it is tremendously valuable. And again, it also depends on what field you want to go into within the gaming. And if you were to be like, hey, I want to work in games. Well, what do you want to work in? Do you want to be an engineer, a software engineer? Well, then you better have your academic studies in order because like programming is a science and, and you know, you need to have that that knowledge and to be considered because that's like, that's just a thing. And then, but it could just as well be that you want to be these days, something like a, a social, social media influencer, because a lot of companies hire these and you are going to be part of the dev team that way, but then it's a completely different road to get there, obviously. Right. Or you want to be in design or you want to be whatever. There's so many different opportunities in games and sure, just like you said, and as an example, Ubisoft hires historians because obviously they, you know, they, they have to, in order to be as uh, rounded in historic accuracy as they can be for those Assassin's Creed games and other companies do that obviously if they are in in those kind of regions as well so there's two things I usually tell people who want to who tell me like hey I want to get into the gaming industry what do I have to do one is make your own games or make your own projects just learn how to do them there's really no excuse not to do it because the tools are out there and there's tons of tutorials there's tons of ways that you can get that knowledge and then two Don't limit yourself to just, I need to be a programmer or, oh, I need to be an artist or, oh, I need to be a designer because that's the classic, you know, that's what everybody knows goes into a game, programmer, art, artist, uh, and designer. But there's so much more to making a game. You have, you have your writers, you have your, you have your translators, you have your localization teams, you have your QA testers who are hugely important. You have engineers for all kinds of software solutions, tools, graphics, what have you. There's so much that goes into making a game. So do some research. There might be, if you're not like into one thing, there might be another. Yeah, well, kind of going a- along that line of what you were saying in terms of, well, obviously, if you want to be a programmer and you do need that degree because it's highly technical. Now, in that regard, if you're going for a highly technical job, I would say, yes, your education does kind of matter there. But since there are always going to be very technical positions that require people with these STEM technical backgrounds, for those other folks in humanities who maybe don't want to be writers but could contribute in some other way, when looking kind of at a resume and and reading a cover letter, and if, if someone chooses to mention their level of education or institutions, unlike some things like law, where a lot of times I feel like the stereotype is you just, you look at that resume and as long as you see a very well-known, highly regarded Mm. institution, you're like, okay, you're in the club. And then if you see something that's not top of the top, they're like, "Mm, maybe next time, which I have problems with (laughs) elections in general. But, you know, do you find yourself maybe looking at people with these more humanities types degrees, not just for the degree itself, but for the, the tangible skills that humanities majors can develop through being in such a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary sort of um, category, you know? So it's like, maybe there's not an obvious fit looking at it right off the bat, but like if you saw someone's resume and you were just like, oh, classics major, uh, English, English lit, you know, it's like, oh, these people, they 
they're good communicators. They know how to talk. They know how to do interpersonal stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. these often can be what I call glue guys to a project. So, you know, does that weigh in at all in your thinking when you're looking at positions for non-technical spots? Sure. It does for actually pretty much every position. I said earlier, I completely ignore uh, their academic background when I, when I look at juniors and whatnot, but that's, it's, uh, it's true. in like, I don't look at it to make a decision. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't see it <laughs> and you know, it is there. And sure. One thing that certain fields of study definitely bring over others from my experience anyway, is like, how are they able to communicate? How are they able to articulate and showcase ideas to other people? One thing that definitely I notice people that have an academic background that are a lot better at is presentations um, because it's, it's a huge part, like in, in terms of their schoolwork and or their academic work is in order to you know showcase whatever they've been assigned. They have to present it most of the time to classes. It's a personal observation, but most of the time, if, if somebody has a background like that, they will be a lot better at developing interesting presentations and be able to articulate and present their ideas a lot better, which helps because after all, that's what we do. And if you can champion your idea and present your idea better, then that helps as well. Where you come from and, and, and what your education is or where it happened is it's definitely something that is taken into account in regards to like what I anticipate and what I think you will bring to the team. It's, it's just not the end all be all qualifier that like you said in law school it's like oh he's from harvard he's hired uh, or what like this this is me being silly about that sort of thing but that's my imagination <laughs> i would say coming from three members of my family go to harvard and my dad went to harvard law school so i would say you know i i'm not there for the firsthand experience but i feel a little more qualified than the average Joe to say, I, I've seen how things go. That description is is highly accurate. Not in all <laughs> cases, obviously, but but in a lot of cases, yes, that is, uh, that is very much how it goes, which is really sad. But yeah. I'm curious now, you got into the industry and I want to pivot a little toward, so once you were in, mm-hmm. how did you make your way to Ubisoft and how did you make your way onto the Assassin's Creed Odyssey project? I joined a small little studio in Germany. Back then it was Spellbound. Went bankrupt while I was there and then was rebranded Black Force Games. We started uh, it was a very interesting first job. And I did like small little project there. Uh, it was nice. It was a, it was a good environment. It was unfortunate uh, that it was uh, in a bad position, but you know, it worked out. And then while I was working there, I think like on the off chance, uh, be- just because the situation was kind of dire for the studio, I was like, I'm going to apply to this to this franchise, Witcher franchise. The uh, lead quest designer back then, uh, Matty, um, gave me a shot. Like he, uh, they responded and they were like, here's a test, do a test. So I had to make a, a quest in, in an engine of my choosing. I did that and he liked it. And I was like, okay, I, I got that job. The thing about Witcher 3 was that it opened all the doors for me. Uh, that was so, more so than any education uh, in the gaming industry. Titles under your belt and experience count the most. And Witcher 3 is one of those titles that if you've worked on it, it almost guarantees you at least a second look on the resume. When I applied to places, when I, when I then, after the project, applied to places and it was like, People were like, oh, that guy worked on this game. That was like the one 250 awards, blah, 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 whatever. And it made things a lot easier. 
I worked on Witcher 3 until it was done and worked a little bit on the expansions. I did not want to stay in Poland, mostly because uh, my wife could not really find a job there and it was not really an environment where she could just be a, a housewife she, and she doesn't want to be. In order to facilitate that a little bit, we talked and we agreed that we would go somewhere else. I went on for a short time to the United Kingdom. Um, that was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> I well, it was not a mistake. Like I, I was hired for a certain project. That project was almost immediately shut down when I got there without me even having done anything on it. And something else was brought up instead. And I was like, well, that's not what I was hired for. So I want to go somewhere else. Then actually Ubisoft had tried to scout me before while I was still working on Witcher 3. So I had a contact of their HR and I, I contacted them. I was like, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you have anything? And they had two positions open, one in Singapore and one in Quebec. And one the Quebec one was on the Assassin's Creed franchise. Because my wife is Canadian, I was like, well, Quebec seems like a good idea. But they put me through to the recruiters there. And the recruiters there were very excited because Odyssey arguably brought the Assassin's Creed franchise a little more in the open world RPG direction. And I have experience with that. Choices and consequences, again, like, you know, a lot of people have complained that Odyssey is a Witcher 3 clone. I disagree, but it has taken inspiration from Witcher 3 for sure, like so many games do take inspiration from other games. And so my experience there helped a lot. And that's how I got onto the team. And yeah, that, that was really it. It was just that experience that, that got me a leg up on in the hiring process. And and there I was on the Assassin's Creed franchise. I mean, it was a good, it was a good thing. Like I even though I wasn't a huge Assassin's Creed player back in the day, I played the games uh, and I liked them. I thought they were they were great but they weren't like my main forte but i was excited about the opportunity of working on on that game for uh, both for the gameplay reasons but also because the idea of the assassin's creed franchise was always really fascinating to me that whole idea of like going back into a historic setting and experiencing it through the eyes of someone that lived there was just the idea was always really fascinating to me and so i was really happy that i got that opportunity yeah well it sounds like you've had a really interesting but super cool path i mean <laughs> Most people don't just happen to go, yeah, you know, a couple of projects and then not got on something as big as The Witcher. I, in talking to gamers, most of them are like, yeah, I think it's one of the best, most revolutionary games of all time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm inclined to very much agree. I've, I've played a little bit of the game. I admit that I have kind of skipped over being an avid player of it. I, I, do, I do need to get back to it because I really enjoyed it. I think when the TV show came out that encouraged me to go back to it because the TV show came out, I marathon through that and I was like, this is so good. I should actually go back to the game. It's, you know, it's <laughs> Henry like... Cavill has convinced a lot of people to give the game. <laughs> well, it I'm helps because he's such can... a big fan of it. Yeah, he is. Did you see the uh, the interview he did at, at WitcherCon? Like they had this uh, little online convention thing where he just nerded out on, on screens like, yeah, I was playing the games. And I'm, like, I'm like, oh my God. And I was sitting there, I was like, Henry Cavill played my game. I'm excited. <laughs> Well, isn't that a feather in your cap? Yeah. You know, one day when people are like, what do you reflect on? What is your proudest <laughs> achievement? I got Henry Cavill to play my game obsessively. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool, though. I, I have some friends that are, are big Witcher fans. And I mean, I'll, honestly, in this day and age, try finding someone who hasn't heard of or tried or whatever the witcher it, yeah so it it was quite revolutionary in the choices and consequences which we see in odyssey for odyssey players listening 
You know what the deal mm-hmm. is. I know what the deal is. It's awesome. But for the kind of game that really started it all, you know, when you are approaching something this revolutionary that hasn't really been done to that scale before, when you were like trying to write this and do this and developing quest lines and all this dialogue, when you were going about that process, do you think about which options the play all the different options the players might want to choose whether to be you know kind of the asshole or the good guy or do you kind of approach it with one assumption that like okay well I'm going to write this like I'm a player who wants to be the good guy the whole way through and then you know whatever choices we give it's just a another option (laughs) (laughs) I would say that it depends a little bit on what type of story you want to tell and this I'm I'm going to bring this back to you have different type of RPGs. You have the RPG where you have a self-insert character. For example, your Dragon Age, other games like it, where you know you have a blank slate character that you project your personality onto. In those games, you write in a way that you can encompass as many options as possible so that you can give the player the option to be whoever they want to be. When you develop a game like Witcher or uh, Odyssey in that regard, you have at least a baseline character. Witcher 3 arguably even more so than Odyssey because Witcher 3 Geralt obviously is a character that is well established. He has like a multitude of books written about him. People know what Geralt is like. So within that character, you try to give people a chance to sort of be their own version of the character. It's a little, I would argue for the writing team, which I'm not part of, I I just, you know, I I collaborate with them in order to make the quests. But for the writing team, that is arguably one of the toughest challenges because you have to stick to an established character archetype. You have to make sure that anything the player can do fits within the realm of the character, but you still have to make the choices meaningful and different enough to make it feel like it's actually a different path that you take. That is arguably one of the reasons that Witcher 3 was so successful and, and, and beloved is because the choices that you make, they give drastically different outcomes occasionally, but they all feel like, yes, Geralt could have made that choice. My Geralt made that choice, but it's still a Geralt choice. It still makes sense for the character. And in the same manner, we wanted to approach that a little bit for Odyssey. It's a little different because, again, Cassandra is a little bit more of a malleable character, I'm going to say. She's a little more flexible because she doesn't have 10 books written about her, even though she deserves it. But she she's a little, she's not blank slate, obviously, because we have a story for her in mind and we have a, char- like a, a character concept in mind. But it's a little more flexible in that way. And when you develop a character like that, yeah, you go about every, you should go about every potential storyline that you want to tell with a multitude of choices in mind. And the the way that you go about those choices is which are the choices that will have the most impact on the player once they play out. So to me, and this might be a little mean spirited, but I look for places where I can make the player cry and or laugh. I want there to be situations where they're like surprised, but also happy but i also want there to be situations where if they make the wrong choice or a different choice not even the wrong don't think about it in the wrong because that's a that's a whole different thing but they make a different choice it leads to a situation that has them in emotional anguish because again like we are making experiences and hopefully you should be able to make people experience emotions as you go as they go through that story that you make for them yeah well and a small follow-up to that then when you're playing or when you see people play is there is there like a particular direction that you kind of hope that people will go or are you like nah whatever's good just do your own thing man 
I usually don't have a preference. I like when people experience moments that I set up or that other people on my team set up and, and, and have a genuine reaction to it, regardless of which of the, of the choices they, they picked. So Odyssey has a, a nice example for me. And this is ironically very kind of poignant right now is I did a quest at the very beginning of the game, which is the plague quest on Cephalonia. I created that quest and I thought about myself to myself, well, what kind of choice are we going to present here? Like we get, it was not one of the earliest ones. So we wanted to make sure that we show choices and consequences in action together with the writers. We came up with this idea that, you know, there was a plague and, and we would like have Cassandra be the person that comes in and has to make a decision as to how to deal with those infected people. And I'm saying it's particularly poignant now because look at that pandemic out there. And, and it will actually like when it started, I was like, oh my God, the blood fever is uh, is real yeah so we made that and I, I love genuinely watching people play through that see how their choices play out and then skip ahead to whenever they come back to Catalonia to see what the outcome is because a lot of the people obviously don't know that there is a follow-up to it when they come back and then when they come back and they're like what the hell happened <laughs> like the island is like suddenly like corpses everywhere it's like yeah well you had a plague because you saved those people <laughs> like oh no <laughs> so those moments are really fun for me to watch i just love seeing reactions to it and it doesn't matter which way they go yeah i mean i think it'd be really fun just to see the variability of how people choose to craft their own stories which i love although one thing that i definitely as a player struggle with this you know just just curious from from where i'm sitting is how do you deal with when a when a player finds a choice that they really like mm -hmm. and it's not that the other one is wrong but it will result in different things happening mm -hmm. how do you deal with but if you as a creator want people to be able to experience everything and different things but for people like me i kind of get stuck and i go okay well there's some choices that i just don't ever want to do the mm. other thing so for for the blood fever quest i was like okay i can feel really shitty and let these people die but like I could probably save this <laughs> disease from, you know, spreading and killing other people. And so once I did that the first time and I learned like, oh, okay, this is fine. I never want to actually save the people, which makes me feel terrible. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, every time I play this game now, I'm going to feel terrible. Cause right at the beginning, I'm letting people die. Is there anything that you would say that like should encourage people like me to maybe do the other option? I'm still like, I have to get the happy ending. I don't want to get the sad ending. I no. know the sad ending is like a traditional Greek tragedy, but I'm like, I don't want to kill everyone. Yeah. To me, the most important part is that you have fun. And so one thing that, and, and this is actually something that I had to, some of us at, at Ubisoft Quebec had to sort of drill into people is that, and also convince management of, is that sometimes it's, it is okay that people don't experience content that you create. And, you know, it's always a little bit of a, of a thing, especially when you talk to upper management where it's like well but you know this cost us money to make and and nobody's seeing it i'm like well but maybe two people are seeing it and they will be very excited and to me that's worth it especially because then you know word of mouth spreads and people are like oh my god did you know there's another option and and that's how people talk about these games and that's what's kind of really super important but that doesn't mean that people have to experience all of it and and you have to let go of that idea that everything 
everything you make in a game like this is going to be consumed by everyone. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine because people, these games are about having, I think we sold the game with the slogan, like live your own odyssey, right? And that's the idea. That was the idea behind Witcher 3. That's the idea behind Assassin's Creed Odyssey as well. And um, I think that's, that's really the important thing to remember when you make a game like that. And also when you play a game like that, there's no wrong in the choices you make. You can argue all day long. You can like, pontificate and and have Socrates tell you like is this really the right choice to make you know totally that and that's that's cool that's awesome so that you get people to think about what choices they make but ultimately there's not a wrong choice and that's kind of what I meant earlier when I said like there are no wrong choices when you design quests and and encounters and, and storylines like this you got to remember like there should never be a choice that is considered wrong that leads to a fail state like they're used other games do that you know when you play your red deads or uh walking deads or some stuff like that there are sometimes choices that or 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 uh, things there when you fail or when you when you go a wrong way or you know when you do some or say something wrong it will lead to a fail state and that's perfectly fine for those games great and you know it's a different type of storytelling for a choice-driven narrative game like Odyssey, that is is a no-no. Like every choice is is lead lets you continue on. It has different consequences, and maybe you don't like those consequences, but it lets you continue. Yeah, I you know, I do love the emphasis on player agency, but I was noticing and I was discussing this with a friend the other day, another aspect of giving a player freedom to kind of pick how they want things to go is in the balance between the text choice that's presented when Mm -hmm. playing the game versus the actual audio response, right? So on my screen, it could say something really simple, like, yes, I will help you, or no, I don't want to do that. And then if you click it, they don't just say exactly what you picked, right? They have their own written response. And so one of these examples that I can think of right now is, right at the beginning on Kefalonia, when you're talking to Marcos about <laughs> the debt and, and the Cyclops mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And then you have the option to sort of be nice and say, you know, you really shouldn't trust duties with the money versus this was stupid, yeah. you know? And then you see the range of what is actually said. How do you balance that? And does it go into consideration versus what you're showing the player essentially kind of like, well, this is the direction generally of yeah. you want them to say this versus what's actually being said. Yeah, it's, it's actually very important. And it is one of the most tricky things to do because obviously in a voiced RPG, you can't really fit an entire answer into a, into a line of dialogue. Like a lot of uh, like CRPGs, you know, again, like modern CRPGs like Baldur's Gate and whatnot, they will have the entire dialogue line that you're going to say written and you can choose and, and that's fine and that's cool. But in games like this, you obviously can't do that. And then it gets to the point where you need to, and this is, again, this is like the writer's responsibility. Like they have to condense the line down to something that can be displayed in one line, but doesn't deviate in tone too much. And I'm going to say in, on Witcher we had, on Witcher 3, we had a scene that was a, a real failure in that regard <laughs> because there is a scene down the line where you encounter an NPC that blocks your way. He's kind of like a frenemy at that point. Like Geralt likes him, but he's also kind of against him. And, like, eh, nah, nah, nah. and uh, the choice that you have is to say line X or the other choice is shove Dijkstra, the, the guy, away. That was the original line that was displayed. What happened in the cinematic after, in the, in the dialogue after, is Geralt shoves him to the ground and breaks his leg. 
And a lot of people were like, hey, what? wait a second. I just wanted to shove him out of the way, especially because the guy already had a bad leg and, and Gerald broke his other leg. So it was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. So you, this is the thing because you don't, you don't want to spoil the line in, in the preview, obviously, especially when it comes to like uh, choices that have meaningful consequences. You don't want to spoil everything, but you want to give the player enough information that they can make an informed decision. So that's the tricky part is to, to condense the line, the whole dialogue that follows up into a line that, that the player can make a good uh, decision based on. Okay, it sounds like a very tricky line. Mm -hmm. And so you've worked on two series that sort of historical, well, one is more historically based, the other is more fantasy based. What is the experience like as a creator, you know, working between these two? Do you have, I don't want to say a favorite, because that's a really tough thing. You, it's hard to pick favorites. But, you know, is there like a preferred option that you would pick whether you got, you know, the chance to work on something a little more historically focused versus something completely in fantasy. I know that the processes must be completely different, but it's they're very different areas, I would say. Yeah, they are. I don't think I can pick a favorite. They both have pros and cons. Working in a completely fictional setting like Witcher 3, you have a lot more freedom in regards to uh, interiors of buildings like oh we want a, a, a pretty looking bathhouse okay we're gonna go crazy this is gonna be amazing uh, you have magic you have you know you can explain things away with magic that's cool but you can't really do that and and even though we went you know a little a little mythical in, in odyssey still like we still had at least a bit of grounding in reality and didn't have cassandra just levitate through the world on the flip side it's tied to a specific it has to be internally consistent so witcher 3 you know needed to be internally consistent to the witcher 3 world so you have to abide by rules of that world and in witcher 3 those were rules that weren't necessarily made by us because they were based on the books again and sometimes that was frustrating because it led to situations that could have been resolved better and then historical fiction such as Assassin's Creed, to me, it was really fascinating because it got you to, uh, first of all, I learned a lot myself in researching and, you know, like trying to find like stories that we could use to sort of facilitate the stories we wanted to tell and all of that stuff. And second of all, it gives you a baseline that is established. Like you can, for example, just like the areas you can, you know, our team went to Greece and like mapped out the areas and we used actual maps to create all the base in Assassin's Creed. So, so that was cool because it gave us an already very real feeling environment to begin with. Whereas in, in a completely fictional world, it gets a lot harder to, to make the player believe that they are in a space that feels like it, like it, could be a thing again like in terms of historical fiction you have a lot of inspiration to draw from a lot of stories that that come from that world can be either reused or you can you can sort of like shape them into your own stories you can think about what what kind of thematic do i want to pack in here oh there's something uh you know herodotus said about that so we can use it for that and that's really cool that that's because it, yeah, it, it got me thinking and it got me learning and, and that's amazing. And I would say if I were to pick a favorite or if I were to say like I want to, what I want to work on again, uh, I would say I want to go science fiction. So completely different. <laughs> so neither of the above. Which yeah, is, just, uh, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would direction. say, hey, if you have the chance, go for it. I think that would be a really fun, <laughs> fun experience. Complete kind of the trifecta of different yeah. weird sort of completely just sci-fi fantasy, mystical, maybe exactly. a little historical, you know, mash them all together. <laughs> OK, since you had to do some research, obviously, for Odyssey and something a little more historically based, is there a particular quest or choice 
in the game that pretty much was a result of the research that you did that you were just so inspired by from real life that you were like I have to find a way to put something in reference to this in the game yeah a couple of things actually the one that stands out to me is Phoebe Phoebe is based on a girl that was found excavated in uh, in a grave in actually in Greece they were very like the, the, we don't know what happened exactly to her but it was a bit of a mystery why she ended up where she was and so it was i think it was actually around that time that I think Mel our narrative director at the time she told me about this and that they wanted to make that a character and i so i did some research into it i was like oh where what is this where come from and i thought this is amazing like let's do something with this and so the character of phoebe came to life and she at first was just a very small presence and then eventually we kind of convinced our creative direction that hey we we should have a character that cassandra can bounce off of and that's sort of like a companion character and that we can take away brutally at some point during the game because she has to she has to die right because it's historically accurate and so that's how phoebe came to be uh, because we we couldn't name her the way she was actually named by scientists when, who discovered her or archaeologists that discovered her. Ooh, this is spicy. Wait, there's like a real story behind Phoebe. And here I was yeah. thinking you just added in some random little girl. Oh, no, nope. I love it. Uh, Myrtis. That was the name that they gave her when they found her. M-Y-R-T-I-S. Ancient Athenian girl turned global ambassador. They, they recreated her face based on, uh, based on the skeleton they found. And if you look a little closely, you can even see the resemblance because she is. She was said to have like a little bit of an overbite and we tried to give the same thing to Phoebe. That's where that came from. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we have you to thank for Phoebe's inclusion as not quite just small NPC bit character. Uh, partly. I, I, of course, uh, other people had the had a say in that and, and drove her inclusion. And I would point a lot to uh, Mel in that regard because she was a strong advocate for it. But yeah, the initial Murtis as a character was initially introduced and, and I was I sort of latched onto it and I was like, hey, we could do this, we could do this. And then it was sort of sidelined a little bit, but then eventually uh, Creative Direction decided, yeah, let, let's do something more with it. And I tried to push for more and more and more. I was like, you need to include her earlier. You need to do more with her. And yeah, I, I did my best there. <laughs> well, bravo, because you know, it, it's heartbreaking, but what happens to her? But, you know, I was, I was really appreciative that she was brought back in some capacity in the DLC. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I had see nothing her again. to do with that, but I'm very happy that it happened. <laughs> so your creation lived on. Someone took yeah. it and said, let's bring her back. Yeah, exactly. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Any, any <laughs> other like fun historical Easter egg that you slipped in there? Or is, is Phoebe like the major one? Phoebe is probably the major one. The thing about Easter eggs is it's always a bit, a bit difficult to slip it by publishing because there's always the worry about copyright infringement and whatnot i'm sure there are more there's a lot of references obviously that go maybe unnoticed except for people who really pay attention in like little written texts and whatnot but mostly that that was the big one that i uh, that I, <laughs> I mean it's totally fine i mean it's it's a massive game i've spent mm -hmm. 400 plus hours in it and i'm still discovering every time i boot it up i swear i find something new and i'm like whoa wait this is in here i mean and then there's the blatant ones right like the ones that my friends and i all went crazy for was the uh supidio 
quest because uh, <laughs> yeah. people were like oh yeah this is kind of fun he has a really funny name it's you know <laughs> yeah. like okay what's what's with his name and then you know my friend my friend was actually the first one to point it out and then she just goes i think that's oedipus spelled yeah. backwards <laughs> and we were like no wait what and then they're like yeah look at it and then we like played the quest out and we were like oh my gosh that's totally it's 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 the myth just in yeah. like video game form with changed name this is brilliant good on whoever included that because that was brilliant oh yeah that was i don't remember exactly who's responsible for it but i do remember playing it for the first time playtesting it when i when i was doing one of my playtest runs for the game and i was just like oh my god and then the dialogue they wrote for it is just also just so brutally on the nose. <laughs> it's so on point. It's so yeah. excellent. I mean, the, the quality of the writing is just excellent in every facet of the game. And I, I don't know many people who have anything bad to say about it because I think the consensus is just, oh, it looks gorgeous. It's a really fun, entertaining game. <laughs> I wonder sometimes if they gave you the freedom to develop your own similar spin-off mm -hmm. project thing if you just gave devs the freedom to do their own thing mm. what would they come back with mm. i i want to know what y'all would come back with what crazy things would you put in how historical would it be i mean if you had your choice and say they gave you control and they said you can do your own mini dlc for this game mm -hmm. would you want to lean heavily into the isu lore stuff or would you would you try to actually put more like historical easter eggs but you know a fun hmm. spin like i don't know what's um, more challenging again there's like different challenges to it i think i would probably lean in the historical direction but that's a personal preference i did generally and uh, really enjoyed the atlantis dlc i thought it was a really good use of, of that particular part of the assassin's creed mythology but it's so funny because you say like there's so much to see in Odyssey and there's so many things and I still find new things and yet we barely scratch the surface of stories that were told in that in that time frame and in, in that timeline. Uh, there's so many so many other myths and legends and 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 stories that have been told about it. Like I would have loved, for example, to uh, maybe do a little DLC about my favorite bad boy the wine drinking playboy of greece we all know who we're talking about uh who i thought was brilliantly this uh, like played uh, i don't remember the, the voice actor. i'd have to check but alcibiades was it was just a pleasure and he was just always fun and i know because we researched obviously again about the character and and uh, about his life and what he did and and there's so much more to what he did like you know being much more than just a playboy <laughs> like the whole his his whole story after the time we had him there in, in in our particular time frame there are many more stories that you know him as a general and him as a, a foreign like agent sort of uh, what he did later so i think that, like that would have been a dlc i would have loved to do like just follow alcibiades footsteps after after you leave him in the main game that would have been amazing yeah and then uh, other areas too aspasia is another character i would have looked so i think maybe character-based DLC, but on historical figures, actually, because there's so many more interesting stories to tell. You know, I wouldn't, I don't know a single person who was not just in love with Alcibiades. I mean, they were just <laughs> like, he was brilliantly voiced, brilliantly written, everyone's favorite. I'm asking this question because it's, it's for me and I'm desperate to know, did you have a favorite romantic storyline or person or were you just pro Cassandra, like going around just being like, 
free agent. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> I have a favorite, but I also think uh, I'm pro Cassandra free agent. But I do have a favorite mostly because I spent a good chunk of time developing that particular storyline, which was the Kira storyline on the Delos Islands. I mean, it, it's a little unfair because Kira and this, the arguably the, the Delos storyline as a whole got a lot of attention because it, we use it as the E3 demo. And while it was also in, always intended to be part of the main game, obviously, you know, you pour a lot more resources into that. So she had a bit of an advantage, but I, I love the story. I thought it was a great story. It had a lot of interesting twists and turns. It had like nice different outcomes depending on what you did. And yeah, that was my uh, overall favorite, favorite romance option. And then uh, other than that, I, I am very much pro uh, Cassandra just rowing on her boat along with all her girlfriends on, on the seas of Greece. <laughs> you know, that's something that I, I definitely... I, I think about only in the context of when I play Valhalla because they let you as Eivor choose to like be in a committed relationship if you so mm -hmm. choose or you can just go around being a hoe like that's your choice but it's made me kind of look back nostalgically and be like oh this would have been fun if you'd given if we'd had the chance to like choose to maybe be with someone a little more long term mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. I just I wonder because I did I love the Kira Cassandra storyline as well. It's it is my favorite of the game, uh, I will admit. So yeah, that would have been nice to see. But yes, <laughs> pro being a Greek hoe going around. <laughs> yes. No, I think overall that was kind of the intention because we knew that we couldn't really make a full on romance not in the way that we structured the game not in the way that we made Cassandra and you know her storyline that she eventually is immortal basically and lives until our present day and all of that stuff so there was not really a, 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 and we didn't want to dictate a, a choice in romance either so all the romances in the game the majority of the romances in the game were made with that in mind just sort of like they're playful they're uh, they're fun you know Cassandra's having fun and yes she um, she cares for these people obviously and she's you know, she's not a mean person that just goes in and bends them and then run, runs away. But she's also a free spirit and she, you know, she moves on. There's never a doubt about that. And there was a bit of a hiccup there when the DLC was made. I can't really speak too much about it, but most of the original dev team was not too happy when that happened. But overall, the, the character of Cassandra was always conceived in that way that she's, yeah, she's, she's a free spirit and she moves on. And maybe sometime in her 2000 years of life, she actually tried a romance who knows? Hey, when I you live Netflix, that long, Netflix. you know, it's almost not worth it, right? Because you just know I'm immortal. Everyone else is yeah. going to die. So I might as well just move around. But it would make for an excellent Netflix series where a very tragic ending to a Netflix series of Cassandra trying to have romance and failing because she's immortal. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> Can someone please in Hollywood get on this? <laughs> like Cassandra already deserves her own tv show miniseries movie whatever it is she deserves a lot more than the 200 hours that you gave her in the game i mean i'm greedy so i want more uh, always go. always more cassandra i think a lot of feel that way but okay well i asked you about one so this mm -hmm. is very unfair to my witcher friends then did you have a favorite <laughs> in witcher i mean are you 
team Yang <laughs> or I mean, that just seems to be the popular one from the people I know. They're all team Yen, but I know a lot of people who are like, no, I'm team Geralt being a man ho, just <laughs> perpetually. I, I would go on that on that team probably, but um, that's kind of the thing with uh, tying back to what I said earlier, Geralt is an established character and everything, and there's really only op- one option for Geralt, and that's Yennefer. He's written that way, and it makes sense, and it, it the story works the best that way. That being said, I had a lot of fun implementing the parts of the Tris romance in Witcher 3 and um, also particularly a lot of fun uh, implementing the fail state if you try to have both of them which was a lot of fun to implement because like we looking at it and we're like so are we going to just artificially cut off the romance if you choose one over the other or you know because and that wouldn't have been really in the spirit of the game so we're like nah you know what if somebody actually tries to tell both of these powerful women that they that you love only them then those two women will be like, you know what, fuck you. <laughs> and uh, I, if you like, you can probably find it on YouTube somewhere. But if you end up doing that, they at some point take you aside and uh, take like coerce you into a room under the pretense of, oh, we made up and now we both want you. And then they take you to a to an in room and they tie you to a bed and leave you with a goat, never to be spoken to again. <laughs> Which was a lot of fun, honestly. I had a lot of fun doing doing the quest, and I think the writer that I worked with on that was uh, also had a lot of fun writing it. <laughs> you know, you make being on a dev team sound so fun because you just get to sit here in your little room, in your little d- dev room with the writers, and be like, "How evil can we be today? Or how much fun can we have with this?" And oh man, I don't really want to be in the gaming industry, but sometimes when I hear fun stories, I'm like gosh darn it maybe that's where i should have ended up obviously we have a lot of fun making we're making games so you know i'm not gonna be sit here and be like oh my god my life is so hard but that being said obviously uh, making games is hard there's a lot that goes into it and there are a lot of moments where i'm not laughing and where i just have to deal with problems that i really rather not wanted to deal with also just trying to find solutions to technological challenges that are difficult and then there are a lot of other considerations while you're working on especially like high profile games to this day because it's so high profile you obviously see uh, stuff about it in the media uh, all the time you get people (laughs) which i will never understand but be incredibly mad about anything like it doesn't matter if it's you know it doesn't matter which direction you go any any decision you make as a developer is always wrong to someone and there's a a lot of uh, public forums out there where that those grievances can be aired but yeah overall uh working in games is great we we try really hard to make entertainment that like that maybe you know makes people think about things a little different sometimes that tells stories that are fun entertaining tragic what have you or sometimes just are fun to play and throw the controller at i mean i haven't made a game like that but uh, some people do Yeah, well, you know, to touch just sort of at the end here a little Mm -hmm. bit uh, to cap off this wonderful gaming discussion that we're having is just as you kind of alluded to some of the the not so fun stuff where people are going to get mad. I mean, I know that while representation is a really big topic right now, especially since gaming has historically been very male, overwhelmingly male. I have friends who love Witcher. I have really enjoyed it. But at the same time, it comes with the idea that, you know, I'm not playing my the main character is not someone who looks like me. Mm -hmm. And I don't I can't really relate on that sort of level. And so then having something like 
oh, not only do you have character choice, but you can be a badass woman in this mm-hmm. ancient Greece game. I know that was very controversial for a lot of people and a lot of historians will sit here and say, that's not historically accurate. I don't know why they would do that. What are some quick thoughts you have on like, how do we help fix this representation issue and just like get people to a better place almost as a society where we're more accepting of okay this isn't historically accurate and this isn't like catering just to like historical trends of men wanting to play video games we have to open up yeah you know what if you have a conclusive answer to that let me know and i'll tell everybody in the end no it is obviously as you mentioned uh it's a very hot topic right now you know we have the the, the lawsuits going around about Activision Blizzard. We have uh, on the and Ubisoft themselves, you know, have, have just last year been um, under fire for that thing, uh, that sort of thing. And I have a lot to say about that. I I was very disappointed in how Cassandra, for example, was treated. I was very disappointed to see the same thing happen again with uh, Femme Ivor, who, you know, when when you look at it and devs are trying their best sometimes to 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 bring representation, but then it still gets sabotaged by other parts of the industry where like yeah this game was made as with cassandra as the main character but marketing is going to ignore that completely and we're just gonna you know even like a year like not one year like three years after release we're going to bring out a figurine of the male character because why not and it's just very frustrating i think what what we need to do and what i'm trying to advocate for and also now that i'm again in a hiring position trying to do is Representation comes when you have people that diverse backgrounds and diverse identities, diverse people really on the team making the game and not just in, you know, low, low level positions, but like in higher level positions and positions of, of power and whatnot. And that, that really is, is, is the crux to me is like, we need to make sure that we get people in there who, who can champion those costs and not just champion those costs, but also make, have the power to make those decisions. And then obviously as I mean, I am a privileged white man, and I know that. The only thing I can do is try to use that privilege to bring other people into the industry and then listen to them and make sure that I don't use my position to obstruct that sort of thing. And I think it is slowly getting better. The industry as a whole, I think, is shifting in a right direction, even though it is, I have my frustrations about this, but I think it's a, it's a, sometimes a one step forward, two step backs kind of thing unfortunately, but I do think there is progress and I think it's worth fighting for that progress, even if sometimes it gets incredibly frustrating. But that just means that people like me have to pick up the pace a little more because we have that, we have that privilege. And hopefully by doing that also inspire other people like me to do the same thing. Eventually the burden won't fall square on the shoulders of, of the few people that actually, you know, <laughs> tough it out in our industry which they shouldn't have to do to begin with and then last but not least obviously our industry sure we make games and and everybody's like oh we make it for the passion and you know we are the most passionate team in the world and it's only passion that counts and blah 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 blah. no we're an industry we make money at the end of the day the the companies that make these games are a business fight not even thinking about shareholders and whatnot just thinking about the fact they need to pay people like i want to eat and other people want to you know be paid so there needs to be income. And what, what I'm trying to get at here is that ultimately, even companies like Activision Blizzard, Ubisoft and whatnot, what they operate on is, is profit. Um, so, you know, when enough people understand that and actually follow through on wanting that representation and, and making sure that companies understand that representation, 
then things shift a little better. And there's a lot to do. I think that, you know, in various fan spaces, we have people that, that are passionate about making that change and making sure that, that we pivot in the right direction. I know as, as an example uh, with Assassin's Creed, uh, there's the Assassin's Creed Sisterhood that has done a lot of great work in regards to like showing Ubisoft that, you know, that, that we need, that we want that kind of change. Just because Ubisoft is still making a lot of mistakes doesn't mean that they are not doing valuable and important work. And I think just more people in, in that space also need to come around to, uh, to that way of thinking. Because at the end of the day, the thing that always gets me when people are like, oh my God, we have, a, we have a female assassin. Like, how can this be blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh my God, I, feel, I don't feel represented. Was like, First of all, now you know how these other people feel. And second of all, you still have 50,000 other games where you are represented. So it's, not, it's never really a thing where people would lose something. It's just some people seem to be afraid of not being the only single target audience anymore. And that kind of thinking we need to, to eliminate. <laughs> uh, we need to make sure that, that people understand that just because you know, we now make Assassin's Creed with uh, Cassandra as the only protagonist, for example, how amazing would that be? That doesn't mean that the next Assassin's Creed might not have a male protagonist or whatnot. It's just we need to actually get to a point where we can have some equal representation. Yeah, it would be nice. And I know things are getting better slowly um, and we need to keep demanding this change. can't tell you how wonderful it was to be able to play this game set in one of my favorite time periods and settings in the entire world and not feel awkward because I'm just like a muscly dude trying to sleep with every woman in ancient Greece because I don't relate to that. I'm yeah. like, mm, not a muscly tall dude. Cool. But now, you know, I can go around as a massive lady tank instead. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. This is amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very interested to see where we go from here. You know, mm. even even like a, a year down the road, I want to know, you know, have there been more games made? Have, you know, are there is there the choice between a male and a female protagonist? Like, you know, how big is this wave that we're creating here? So uh, I think it will be really interesting to see in the future. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So now at the end of the podcast, I ask each guest if they will read a poem called Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. This is my favorite poem in the whole world. All right. And there's no way to accurately describe it other than you have to experience it for yourself because the first time you read it, it's just magical. So <laughs> once you've read this poem for us, if you could just give me your quick thoughts on, you know, what is the meaning of this poem? Like, what is it? What are the messages that it still can offer us today? Whew, I can try. <laughs> Uh, for sure, yeah. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of old command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level stands stretch far away that is beautiful <laughs> very nice poem. I, I probably butchered it reading it, but it was really, No, it was nice. great. It sounds great. Well, hmm. I feel like there's something to be said about learning from the old, even though it is in the past, but like, look on my works, you mighty and despair, but like the past is the past. We have to move on, but you can learn from the past in order to move on is what I think I would take away from this without taking a lot of time to delve deeper into the poem. I love just what is the first thing that comes to mind because I think yeah. it really gives an insight into the power of words alone without yeah. having to like do a deep analysis. And so to give you a little background, uh, Ozymandias is just the Greek name for the Pharaoh Ramesses II. Mm -hmm. I would say when I read this poem, it struck me the very first time. I think I read it in like high school. It is commentary by Shelley on the ephemeral nature of political power and how you can't just be great by yourself, that hmm. we all go together if we want to be great. Because the, the lessons are like, we wouldn't know of this king and his kingdom and his giant statue that is now broken and crumbled in the sand if it weren't one for the artisans who created the statue, because this king, we all know, he was not mm -hmm. going to just sit here and make his own statue. <laughs> And two, for the archaeologists and the people working so hard to uncover the past, it's like this collaborative effort where it's like, man, 
if you think you're just going to be the greatest of all time by yourself, you really need to evaluate because it's a team effort. No one stays powerful forever. I mean, well, I'm sorry, yeah. you can be amazing, but your kingdom is going <laughs> to crumble. And so thinking about it that way, it's, it's very striking. It's very powerful. And so the very last question I ask every single guest is if you think about our modern world, mm-hmm. And all that that entails. Is there like a modern Ozymandias? Something we think is like the greatest ever. It's so amazing. But like realistically, it's probably going to be gone in like 200 years. And we're not going to remember it. <sighs> probably not even remember it. That's a good question. Like I, I don't know about people. I think that overall as an entity, I would maybe argue for capitalism being that because it is sort of like the thing that drives everything the king of everything right now and has been for a while it's like it's it's hailed as the system of like it's the best system conceived and strives for and and drives humanity forward and whatnot but at its core it is just as prone to failure and abuse as any other system and uh, arguably even more so because it is being propped up as the system of systems right now and I do feel like it would be my hope that in the future we will not either just you know see it as a broken statue in the in the back, or we will have forgotten about it and moved on to bigger and better things. As for a person, I don't really think I could point to any one person that that I could call like that that I would see as an Ozymandias. There's many that I think feel that way. <laughs> yeah, you know I. It- I like it. I almost prefer when the answer is not a person because it just Mm. it's a window into, you know, how theoretical are you, you know, willing to go with me there? (laughs) Uh, I love capitalism. It's come up a few times, actually. And I'll tell you my favorite so far, I, I, I think, has been casinos in Atlantic City. My uh, former Ooh. professor brought that one up because when they were all the rage, we were like, this is, this mm-hmm. is the best of the best. And now I'm like, they're literally crumbling empty buildings <laughs> that are falling apart because yeah. we think they're terrible. And like, why did we think this was a good idea? This is terrible. <laughs> like, ew. So yeah. that's, that's kind of where my mind goes. I know it's very tempting to say people, but yeah, funnily enough, the majority of people have not actually said a person, which has been mm. such a surprise to me. Yeah, I, I, think I love capitalism. Yeah. Personality cult is something that I mean it still exists, obviously. I mean, we you know we have arguably people that cultivate something like that, but it it I mean it's no longer an Ozymandia is like a king of kings is arguably hard to find these days. In in one person. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely in, in one person. I'm just like, oh I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do about that. Oh, but yeah. Great answer. And, you know, you're not alone in that one, I will say, because a lot of people have said that. See what holds up. We'll see. Yep. Hopefully, yeah, in like 200 years, we're not still under the thumb of pure capitalism because. Mm, you know what? Little... If uh, if we're still around, let's do another podcast in 200 years. Oh, please. You know what? Fi- <laughs> find me a staff of Hermes Trismegistos and I will happily carry it around <laughs> in my pocket and be immortal. Yeah. So thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's been such a pleasure to, you know, talk shop regarding games. (laughs) I so seldomly get to talk to game devs who control the decisions. So it's always fun (laughs) to peek behind the curtain and, and learn more. Awesome. I am very happy to be here. And again, thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for enjoying the game, honestly. And I hope uh, you continue to 
if you go back to Witcher 3, let me know what you think. <laughs> I will, because now I definitely, I have a motivation to go back. There we go. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.